one of my favorite Bible stories uh, in Scripture spans the last uh, 13 chapters of Genesis. Um, you know, Joseph is the favored son, and his brothers grow jealous, and they trap Joseph, and they sell Joseph into slavery. Uh, they lie about Joseph because of circumstances that are outside of his control, Joseph winds up in Egypt. Potiphar's wife frames him. Joseph ends up in prison. The cupbearer forgets Joseph. And two whole years pass in prison. And then finally, light begins to dawn. Joseph becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And we eventually learn the Lord orchestrated all of this. At the very end, Joseph tells his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And what makes the account uh, one of my favorites is the robust vision of God's sovereign commitment to save His people even when the circumstances appear like they're spinning out of control. I mean, when you're on the ground with Joseph, walking with him through what he's experiencing, all you can see is setback after setback after setback after setback, and you wonder how any good could come of this. There's injustice all over the place. Wicked people are winning. Where are you, Lord? You might even ask. But then comes the revelation. God meant it for good. God's sovereign will was never thwarted. God's commitment to save His people never waned. He stood beside Joseph throughout. He's still in charge when life seems upside down. And that's a great comfort to those walking through chaos and uncertainty and hurt. Times when you're being wronged by another. Stories like this give us hope that God is working in and through our dire circumstances to save His people. In our trek through the book of Acts, a similar theme pervades Paul's defense episodes. You know, we're in the fourth one today, uh, before Festus. And on the ground with Paul, it looks like setback after setback after setback... These Jews have beaten him, tried to kill him, lied about him. The Romans uh, have arrested him. They're shuffling him around. He's nearly flogged. They fudge on justice to him. He's been waiting in prison for two years. How can this be good for the gospel? You might ask. I mean, your best guy is in prison, Lord. What are you doing? But as we keep reading, it becomes plain that God's purpose to advance His gospel and save His people is right on track. Even the imprisonment of His apostle will not thwart the gospel's advance. It just gives Paul another context in which to preach Christ. But there's more to learn than just that from Paul's defense before Festus, and that will become clearer as as we move along. Uh, what I want to do is read Acts 25, and we'll stop here and there uh, to, to flesh out kind of what's going on. 
And, and then the goal is kind of get a good overview of the, t- of the passage. And then, and then I want to point out five ways this account should, uh, should impact us. So let's begin with the first scene in verses uh, 1 to 5. Festus consults the Jews. Festus is another Roman governor. He replaced Felix, okay, who left Paul in prison. Paul hadn't done anything wrong. Felix just wanted to do the Jews a favor. And we're now two years later. Paul is still in prison. Maybe we'll actually get a Roman governor uh, who doesn't forfeit justice for self-promotion. Don't get your hopes up. Verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. They urged Festus, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon Paul to Jerusalem. And then Luke tells us why, and it's not for justice and due process, he says, it's because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. They tried that once already in chapter 23, but God foiled their plans using the Romans. Guess what? God's going to do it again. He does it again in verse 4. Festus replied... That Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Okay, so far, not too bad. Festus seems like he's he's on the ball, right? He's, He's getting to the bottom of things right away and in the right order. He's not going to be pushed around by the Jews. The trial will happen on his turf, not theirs. And that throws a wrench in their plans. The Jews are going to have to do this the Roman way. Which brings us to the next scene in verses 6 to 12. Festus hears Paul's defense. So verse 6. After Festus stayed among them not more than eight or ten days... He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they couldn't prove. Surprise, surprise. Right? They did the same thing before Felix. Right? Their law says, you shall do no injustice in court. And yet, they charge Paul with wrongs they couldn't prove. So, verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Already, we know that, uh, that Paul isn't against the law or the temple. He simply explains their fulfillment in Christ. And so this, this could turn into kind of an intramural debate of sorts, right? Where the Jews are taking their religious position and Paul is taking his religious position. Well, the Jews don't want that to happen. And so they kind of interlace some civil charges against Paul. He's against Caesar. Watch it. 
That's why he says, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So Rome wouldn't have cared all that much if it was just this kind of this religious squabble going on between different sects within Judaism. But they bring in the civil charge against Caesar. They slander Paul as some revolutionary against Caesar. But as we've witnessed throughout Paul's ministry, followers of Jesus don't spread his kingdom by political revolt. And that's not what Paul's been doing either. Right? They do it through patient, truthful teaching and love, even when that love means suffering for Christ's sake. Remember, the goal of Paul's defense here isn't simply to get Paul off the hook. Uh, he doesn't defend his innocence for his own sake. He defends his innocence for the gospel's sake. He doesn't want the gospel falsely associated with some revolutionary, you know, rev- uh, stirring up political revolts. When that's not how Christ spreads his kingdom, he doesn't want the gospel falsely associated with some heretical offshoot in Judaism uh, when Christ came to fulfill their law and their prophets and make Israel's hope of resurrection reality. Paul wants the message clear. He isn't changed because people hate Christ and him crucified and risen, not because Paul has done anything wrong. So he gives his defense. And that should have been enough to convince Festus to release Paul, but it seems that Festus, just like Felix, loves self-promotion, after all, more than he does justice. Look at verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, here we go again, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Who's the real Roman citizen here? Who, who has Rome's best interest at heart? Whose character is the most upstanding? It's obviously not the Jews. Right? They plan to bypass due process, assassinate a Roman citizen, and now they obstruct justice with false charges. But it's also not Festus. He knows what's right, as Paul indicates, but he doesn't act on what's right. All to what it says do the Jews a favor. Festus has no right to give Paul over to the Jews, and yet he equivocates on justice to do the Jews a favor. Meanwhile, Paul remains innocent of political upheaval. He respects the governing authorities, and he even shows willingness to submit himself to the death penalty if he's actually guilty. And to top that off, he's not against Caesar. 
He'll stand right before the man if that's what it takes to convince Rome about the truth of Christianity and the integrity of his gospel witness. I'll go to Caesar for this. Well, this puts Festus in a bit of a pickle. All right, which we see develop in verses 13 to 27. Okay, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice happen to be in town, and Festus calls on Agrippa for some advice. Let's listen to what he says in verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. And so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now notice, he's... We didn't get all... Luke kind of summarized what Paul was preaching before. Uh, Apparently, Paul went on not just to say, hey, I'm innocent of these charges, but he also went on to preach the resurrection of Christ. Okay? So he says, rather, they had certain points of dispute about him among their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions... I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the empire, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, Oh, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Now notice how Festus paints himself in the best possible light. Okay? We know he made this decision to do the Jews a favor. That's what Luke tells us. That's what the Holy Spirit tells us. He did it to do the Jews a favor. But here, Festus says he was only at a loss how to investigate these questions. Really, over a man's innocence. You're at, you're at a loss. What kind of government, what kind of governor are you? Right? You're at a loss how to investigate these questions. The only loss he's really concerned about is his reputation with the Jews. And now, his reputation before Caesar. Okay? He knows he can't release Paul to the Jews, or else he'll upset the Jews. And they were a persnickety bunch of people for the Romans. But Paul also appealed to Caesar, which means Festus is forced to come up with some good reason why he kept Paul in custody. Otherwise, what's he going to tell Caesar? He'll be the laughing stock of the town if, as a governor, he can't even tell Caesar why he's keeping Paul in prison. And that's his worry. Uh, you can see this come out further, in verse, uh, starting in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp 
And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, showing that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. (laughs) But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Did you hear that? I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him, to which we all want to say, exactly, because there are none. So twice... Festus notices Paul's innocence before Rome. But here, oh, let's see if we can come up with something, Agrippa, because I don't want to look like a fool when I put him before Caesar. That's the way he's acting. That's why he wants Agrippa's advice. He's in a pickle. And all the while, Paul is the man of integrity And Christianity stands out as what's good for the empire and most concerned for justice. So that's our overview. What are the takeaways in a passage like like this one? This is is really just the lead-in to to Paul's climactic testimony in the book of Acts in chapter 26, which we'll spend all of next week uh, on. So we've kind of divided this unit, 25 and 26, up into two parts. But if we look just at this first part, what, what are the takeaways in a passage like, like this? Well, one takeaway is just kind of right on the surface, and it has to do with the historical figures involved. Okay? We, we've now met two Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and a Roman king and his sister, Agrippa and, and Bernice. All four appear in ancient historiography outside the Bible. And you can research when they ruled and what role they played and what sort of characters they were. And not only does Luke's testimony complement these historical figures, uh, these historical sources, but he's even writing acts within the living memory of eyewitnesses uh, or those who spoke to those eyewitnesses of what's going on. And so it'd be real easy for anyone to go verify uh, whether Luke was telling the truth or not. They could go to Paul and they could ask Paul, what happened? What did you say on this trial? When did it happen? Who did you sit before? Right? They could go to the court records and see what happened and look it up. They, they could go to the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city uh, and ask questions. It's part of the apologetic of Acts. It's why he's naming some of these people. Like, go, go ask Claudius Lysias. He did all this stuff to Paul. And as Paul will tell Agrippa later on, it's not as if these things have happened in a corner, Agrippa. Speaking about Jesus and and, and the church and whatnot. The point being, there's no fake news here in Acts. It's all true. Luke gives us what actually happened, and if he gives us what actually happened with Paul, then you know what? He's also given us what actually happened with the risen Lord Jesus. 
His gospel tells us that, that Jesus came and was born son of David. And that he lived and taught and he died to forgive our sins. And that he rose again according to God's promises in Scripture. And that Jesus then ascended into heaven when the, with the apostles witnessing it all happening. And that Jesus is still alive, emboldening his church by the Spirit to spread the gospel to the end of the earth. This is historical reality that nobody can deny without a hardened heart against the truth. All that matters to most religions is whether the experience holds true, regardless of historical verification. But Christianity is dependent on its historical claims. And Acts is a key contributor to these historical claims. Luke helps you and me follow Christianity not, not just because of subjective experience, but because it's objectively true. Okay? Another takeaway is that we have an example in Paul of what it looks like to live before governing authorities. We have an example in Paul of what it looks like to live before governing authorities. You know, many of us have read Romans 13 before. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter chapter 2 is, is another one. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as to governors. Think of today's passage, Paul's before Governor Festus. To governors as sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Then he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we read those texts, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and, and we sometimes ask, okay, how? How do we do this? What if they're corrupt rulers? What does being subject to their authority look like? How do I act if they wrongly accuse me and make all kinds of stuff up? Well, all we need to do is flip back in our Bibles to the book of Acts, and you see the apostles Doing it all over the place. Right? Here we have numerous examples to compare and contrast and relate to the governing authorities of our own day. And great, great wisdom is required for differing settings and different rulers, but great wisdom you can find by patterning your responses after those of the apostles themselves. So watch how and when he utilizes his rights to serve the gospel. Right? Watch how he respects the governor without compromising his allegiance to Jesus. Watch how he serves his enemies. Watch how he instructs the church to, to pray for those who are in uh, positions of authority. Watch this. Take notes and then, and then imitate the apostles. And then when you do you'll realize soon that those who truly follow Jesus have lives that image Jesus. Those who follow Jesus have lives that image Jesus. That's a third takeaway. Luke wants you to see the risen Jesus at work in Paul. We know this, by the way, he writes about Paul. And here's some homework for you. 
Go home and read Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Read the whole thing. And then I want you to turn over to Acts 25 and 26 and read it all together. And I want you to write down and jot down some similarities. You will notice a ton. Okay? I'll give you the quiz next Sunday. But you'll find things like in Luke 23, you find a Roman governor, Pilate, a Herodian king who is uh, Antipas, the Jews, and Jesus on trial before them. And then in Acts 25 and 26, we find a Roman governor, Festus, a Herodian king, Agrippa, the Jews, and Paul on trial before them. You have, uh, you'll also see that authorities brought Jesus before Pilate, and then the authorities order that Paul be brought before Agrippa, and Luke uses the same vocabulary to describe both. Uh, The Jews accused Jesus of both religious and civil rebellion. And they do the same against Paul. The Romans acknowledge Jesus' innocence three times. And the Romans acknowledge Paul's innocence three times. We got two of them today. Uh, Agrippa will finish it up at the end of 26 next week. Jesus is not freed, as we know. Paul is not freed. So why is Luke writing his account this way? Why not just summarize the ideal? Especially when this is like the second or third time we've heard Jews say some, bad, some false things. Paul defends himself. Jews say some... Why, why is he going into all this detail still here with Festus and Agrippa? Because the Holy Spirit wants you and me to see more than just another trial. The Holy Spirit wants you and me to see Jesus alive and animating His people to walk in His footsteps. You could even add how God's kingdom wasn't growing among those with all the political power and great pomp, right? Agrippa and Bernice with all their, the glamour of their military cohorts. And uh, you could just think of these great leaders of the day that have their military helicopters and tanks rolling down the street and everybody marching with great pomp, right? And, and, and Acts is pointing out, hey, God's kingdom ain't there. And it won't ever be there. God's kingdom was growing among those who walked the road of weakness and humility to speak the truth of the gospel. That's where his kingdom was manifesting itself. And you see that in Jesus' trial as well. In true followers of Jesus, you will see Jesus imaged and reflected. So how would you say... People see Jesus imaged in you. Are the people around you and in your circles of friends and and whatnot, are, are they getting a clear glimpse of Jesus in the way you serve others? Are they getting a clear glimpse of Jesus 
in, in, in the way you speak to others. Like to your spouse. Like to your children. Uh, when, when you respond to your parents. Uh, or, or to your classmates. Or, or when, you, when you talk to your clients or your coworkers, When you communicate on social media. Could people identify Jesus in your words? In your servanthood? In, in your sacrifice? What about your joy? Or in your delight? Uh, or in your, in your, in your deep-seated contentment on a day-to-day basis? In the Father's care of you? In those things too, can, can they see Christ imaged? If I answered those questions for myself, I'd have to say that, that my image isn't very clear. The mirror of my life is still quite broken and smeared with the filth of my sin. I need the Lord's forgiveness and grace to walk in in newness of life. I need my eyes fixed afresh and often on Jesus. It's only by beholding His glory that we will then be transformed from one degree of glory to the next into His image. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep looking to Him. And day by day, that mirror will become clearer and clearer so that your life is reflecting Jesus' glory as well. A fourth, uh, don't miss uh, the Lord's sovereign purpose in Paul's imprisonment. Uh, with Paul you know, getting shuffled around all over the place, uh, you know, before this people and that, before this uh, group of authorities and that, before this governor and that, now before a king, you know, with all the craziness going on, it, it's easy to forget God's sovereign purpose. Uh, so I want you to turn back with me to chapter 9 in Acts. Chapter 9, this is the very start, the very front end of Paul's ministry shortly, I mean, as he's being converted, right? And then and, and the, Lord, the Lord has something to say specifically to Ananias. He's gonna, Ananias is supposed to bring this, this message to Paul. Um, but chapter 9 of Acts, verse 15 and 16, the Lord says these words to Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What's God's sovereign purpose in all of this suffering and imprisonment? It is to make his name famous among Gentile Kings. Right? Paul gets to sit before kings and declare to kings who the king of kings is. And that's why he's got him before the kings. The suffering of God's people is not merely happenstance, it's not merely the coincidence of Christians living in a hostile world. It happens by God's will and design for His name to advance through a suffering church. 
Did you notice that this whole thing, uh, you know, has pagans talking to each other about Jesus? Right? They don't get it fully, but they're still talking, aren't they? You know, Festus to Agrippa, you know, maybe they're sitting over lunch sometime. Hey, the Jews had these certain points of dispute. I don't really know what to do with this guy, but they're disputing about a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And there you go. God's name's getting famous between two pagans over lunch talking about this Paul guy. So the idea is, yeah, rejoice. God's name is going out. Christ's name just went forth. Paul's got Roman governors and kings discussing the resurrected Jesus. And what does Romans tell us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God is spreading his word to save people. Well, what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 1? This is, you know, he's writing to the church. And the church is a little antsy. And they're, they're asking questions like, why is Paul in prison, Lord? What are you doing? This is our guy. We need him out planting churches, right? But he's in prison. He's stuck there. And we're worried. And he writes to them to give them confidence. And he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is in his imprisonment, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. How about that? The whole imperial guard has heard and everybody knows why Paul's in prison. Christ and his his, his risen lordship. Yes, God's purposes aren't, aren't thwarted by chains and bars and unjust leaders. The gospel is advancing right here. Jesus' name is becoming more and more famous through it all. So I just, I just want to say to us, give yourself to that unshakable purpose. Right? No matter the cost, you can't lose here by investing yourself in making Jesus' name famous. God is unwaveringly committed to making His name famous. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Take that to the bank and give your life to it. That's where the world is heading. So give your life to it with all the might God gives you. His purpose will not fail. And then the last takeaway, and then we're done. When I prepare sermons uh, every week, I pray through the membership role here. Um, I don't read a single sentence without seeing faces, uh, your faces, when I'm preparing sermons. Um, and I, I couldn't help but thinking of several of you who are experiencing unjust treatment of, of some kind. Uh, for some time or more recently, you've faced unjust treatment from a spouse. Uh, you've lost your job, and the employer 
did not handle the situation rightly or with sufficient notice. Or, per, or perhaps you just feel a whole lot of insert, uncertainty about the future, period. You're, you're following Jesus and you're being faithful as best you know how, but you can't really see where all this is leading. And what makes it even worse are all the untrustworthy people involved. Can I just ask you to read this passage and notice how God strengthens Paul and supplies Paul with everything he needs to be faithful in these crazy, unjust, uncertain circumstances. If the Lord is able to strengthen Paul and he gives him patience with evil and he gives him soundness of mind and he makes him a faithful servant and he gives him boldness to preach when he's facing these kinds of circumstances. Notice he doesn't take Paul out of these circumstances. He leaves Paul where he's at and he gives Paul all the strength he needs and the power he needs to be faithful to Jesus and to announce Jesus. Beloved, then he will also strengthen you in the most crazy and unjust circumstances. Our God is a God who strengthens his people. Isaiah 41.10 I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or how will Paul say it to Agrippa next week in chapter 26, verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. To this day I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. That's who your God is. He helps us in the most crazy insane, unjust circumstances. With injustice all around, He will stand with you, beloved, and He will make you a faithful witness to His name. So don't lose heart here. The Lord is in this situation, not just with Paul. He's he's in this with you. Look at His faithfulness to Paul in the midst of His crazy circumstances and then rest yourself in the fact that he will graciously care and sustain you no matter what comes in the path of your obedience. Let's uh, let's celebrate the supper together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.